Poor naked wretches, wheresoever you are. Had my sweet Harry had but half their The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. You're listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Hold That Thought. I'm Rebecca King, and today I'm talking to Robert Wiltenberg, who teaches in the English department at Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Wiltenberg has written and spoken about a specific theme that reoccurs in Shakespeare's work, which is also the topic of our podcast today. We think of writers as having sort of crucial moments. Everybody remembers Dickens' deathbed scenes or reunion scenes where you suddenly discover, oh, that's the daughter of such and such. Who realized? If you're reading something like Homer, it's battles and, you know, he fell thunderously and his armor clattered upon him kind of thing. In thinking about Shakespeare, so many of his characters are seeking power of one kind or another. Power of self-discipline in some sorts, but more often it's romantic power, it's political power, or military power, imaginative power over other people. And once you've attained that power, what do you do with it? Do you use it humanely? Do you use it mercifully? Or do you not? So many times throughout the Shakespeare canon, you'll see a character define themselves by the way in which they use their powers to either grant or withhold mercy. It's not the key to every play or the key to every character, but again and again, you'll see that people, sometimes it's pretty trivial, uh, sometimes it's in easy circumstances in which, oh, sure, mercy, fine. Other times it's heart-wrenching and difficult to do and costs a lot for the character who's granting mercy at the same time, so it's not a trivial thing. Sometimes it's successful, sometimes it's not. There are tragic landscapes, tragic plays, in which mercy is hardly to be found and doesn't much succeed even when it is found. But it's always a key question, it's always a key element, especially if you're the audience. You're looking for it, you're yearning for it, to be present and to succeed. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. The success of mercy often depends on the genre of the play. In the first folio that collected Shakespeare's works, the editors broke down his plays into three genres, comedies, histories, and tragedies. However, scholars have since added the tragicomedy, which we discussed in a previous episode. Sometimes the tragicomedies are also known as the romances, or the problem comedies. Interestingly, Shakespeare seems to have focused on the genres in this order in his own writing career. First he wrote comedies, then histories, then tragedies, and finally, the tragicomedies. I mean, comedy is wonderful because it's the place where mercy most often triumphs and is easiest to arrange. Mr. Nice Dream is kind of one of the easiest ones of all. You've got the situation in which the king and the queen of the fairies are quarreling. Oberon, in order to enforce his will, finally just, you know, sprinkles something on her eyes that makes her fall in love with this guy who's got an ass's head on. It's a particularly comic moment. And, you know, she bends to his will, and when he finally gets what he wants, he feels pity for her and says, okay, we take the spell off. And so he exercises mercy. Now, of course, previously he's been anything but merciful in imposing that absurdity on her. But that's removed. And, you know, once it's removed, oh, okay, we all come to know ourselves. The lover is in the same thing. There's a sort of night scene in which they are sort of passionately pursuing each other, and then they get confused and they pursue the wrong ones, but very certain that they're doing the right thing at all times. And in comedy, the way in which mercy is, I think, most important is that people have to learn to treat each other with mercy. 
they need to stop being so damn sure of who they think they are. They need to stop being so sure of who they think the other person is. <laughs> they need to give each other space, be a little bit merciful. Don't be so sure of what you think is real, what you think is right. And it's that sort of mutual disarming, that mutual, yeah, okay, I'll give you some slack. That makes comic resolutions possible. I mean, comedy does not mean everybody agrees about everything. Comedy means that there is space for everybody to live their life. <laughs> at the end. Now, of course, you also want true lovers to get together, and you want those confusions that have taken place earlier to be resolved, and they are. And in that play, if you give up your dead certainty about things, you do get your true love. Of course, in the tragic comedies, the middle ground between tragedy and comedy, mercy is not so simple, nor does it always win out. And then there are these so-called problem comedies. And Merchant of Venice is sort of wonderful for the subject of mercy, partly because it's got that famous speech that everybody knows about mercy. The Merchant of Venice, this guy Antonio, he's the richest guy in town. He's temporarily embarrassed for funds. And he goes to a local moneylender, a guy Shylock happens to be Jewish, and he makes this joking arrangement with him. Oh yeah, if you can't pay me back when the time comes, instead uh, give me a pound of your flesh. Not thinking, of course, that that would ever possibly happen. Well, then a series of strange events take place. Ships that were supposed to sail in get wrecked at sea or lost or whatever. Looks like Antonio really won't be able to pay. And so then Shylock, who has been mistreated over the years by his Christian fellow Venetians, conceives this extravagant revenge. Oh, I really will take the pound of flesh. And this is all coming to a crisis, a climax in the court, and in comes Portia this young heroine disguised as a legal scholar. And she gives this wonderful speech about mercy. She's imploring Shylock to exercise some mercy, not demand just strict justice. What she says is, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, an attribute to awe and majesty wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. And of course, the wonderful speech and you know, wonderful philosophy of governing. Of course, it doesn't work in the play. Uh, it's announced in the play, but what actually takes place is that Shylock is constrained both by a law. Oh, it turns out you can take flesh but not blood. So there's a technicality on which he can't do it, but also he's then convicted of seeking to take the life of a fellow citizen and so forth. He is finally forgiven. He keeps most of his capital on the condition that he be forced to convert to Christianity. That's hardly a mercy. Because of Shylock's insistence on revenge instead of mercy, he too is not met with forgiveness for his actions. Things only get worse for mercy in Shakespeare's tragedies. So the saddest parts of what happens to mercy in the plays, of course, happens in the tragedies, where you've got these awful situations in which mercy is crying in the wilderness, really. In Othello, you have the situation where one of Othello's officers has been disgraced by Iago's machinations, and his innocent young wife tries to make the plea on behalf of Cassio, the young officer, and Iago looks at that and he says, ah, oh, I can find a way to turn that against her. Make even her greatest virtue, 
her kindness, her desire to bring together, reconcile these two people, I'll turn that against them. And he does. And poor Othello is so deluded at the end that even when he's strangling Desdemona, when she shows a sign of life, he says, oh, I'll be merciful and finish you. Oh, it's, it's one of the hardest moments in Shakespeare. And similarly in King Lear, where if you look at the various characters, Goneril and Regan, the two daughters who don't care anything about Lear, Edmund, the bastard brother of Edgar, who seeks to conspire against both his father and his brother, they're almost in a contest to see who can be the least merciful. <laughs> On the other hand, you have miracles of mercy. Cordelia, despite all that's been done to her, all the suffering she's been through, she still feels for him just as he did. Edgar, although his father has sought his life, his father Gloucester is feeling suicidal, and there's this wonderful moment when Gloucester, blinded, he doesn't recognize Edgar who's disguised. He said, lead me to this cliff so I can throw myself over. And so Edgar leads him to the cliff, supposedly. It's wonderful in the theater because, of course, you're right there on the stage. They're not on the balcony. He's not going to push him over. So he just lets him fall over right there on the stage and then picks him up and revives him. And Edgar does this wonderful thing. He says, look how high the cliff is. You've fallen from this incredible height. It's a miracle. And again, that sort of this is mercy in action. The attempt to try to heal him, to persuade him that his life is valuable despite everything that he's been through. So there are moments of that. And there's that, that wonderful moment when Lear has recovered Cordelia at the end. And it's that great speech about the two of us will sing like birds in the cage and we'll forgive each other and we'll live this wonderful, perfected life of mutual mercy and delight and forgiveness. And then, of course, after that, Edmund gives the order. She's taken off and is killed off stage. Certainly, as you're sitting there in the audience, being torn by all of this and taken through it, you're yearning for some sort of mercy to prevail. In fact, Cordelia's death so upset audiences that 17th century playwrights even revised the end of King Lear so that she lived and happily married Edgar. However, in Professor Wiltenberg's opinion, the play that best sums up Mercy is one of his last, The Tempest. The play that I think sort of best shows both the power of mercy, the vulnerability of mercy, is the Tempest. Prospero, of course, is a man who has been wronged, like so many of Shakespeare's tragic uh, heroes and heroines. He was the Duke of Milan. He wanted to devote himself to philosophy and study and so forth. His brother, conspiring with the Prince of Naples, Alonzo, decides to overthrow him and banish him. And so this happens, and through a minor act of mercy, one of his courtiers, Gonzalo, is able to put Prospero and his infant daughter, Miranda, in a boat, gives him some supplies, gives Prospero some of his books of magic, and so Providence takes him to a desert island. And after a dozen or so years go by, Prospero, who has become quite an accomplished magician thanks to his books, learns that a ship carrying his brother Sebastian, the prince who betrayed him, Alonzo, and Alonzo's son, Ferdinand, who just happens to be Miranda's age, is passing by his island. So, Prospero brings them to him by conjuring the titled Tempest, and leads them to believe that they are shipwrecked, with illusions placed by Prospero's fairy servant, Ariel. Prospero, he's got kind of a double purpose in the whole thing. Terrible things were done to him, he's undergone great suffering, so he wants Milan back, he wants revenge of some sort upon the people who had misused him. But he also wants a happier thing to happen. From the very beginning, his plan has been that Miranda, his now mature daughter, will marry the son of Alonzo Ferdinand. And so, okay, what had been this divorce and this misuse and this usurpation will turn into a unity and a marriage by the end. 
Now, of course, a lot has to be gone through before that happens. And you see all these fierce wanderings. You see trials of love. You know, is Ferdinand really worthy of Miranda? Well, he shows that he is. Can the men who misused Prosper be reformed? Well, that's not so clear. And in a couple of cases, no. There are Antonio Sebastian, his brother, and another conspirator. These are guys who can never be reformed. You just have to put them off there, constrain them, make it impossible for them to do any evil. But there is Alonzo who was his brother Prince. And Alonzo, of course, has enough of a soul left, unlike Antonio Sebastian, that he can be appealed to. He cares deeply about his son. And again, caring deeply about somebody is the thing that makes you redeemable. But then the moment of mercy comes, what Professor Wiltenberg would call a quintessential Shakespearean moment, where Prospero has achieved the ultimate power over everyone on the island. With his magical illusions, he controls their very senses, making them believe whatever he likes. He's tested their virtue, as Professor Wiltenberg described, and played matchmaker between Ferdinand and Miranda. He has achieved all that he has set out to do. And Ariel, who's this airy servant, says to him, uh, here's been the total effect. Your charm so strongly works him that if now you beheld him, your affections would become tender. Prospero says, dost thou think so, spirit? Mine would, sir, were I human. And so Prospero thinks about this for a moment, and then he says, Hast thou, which art but air, a touch, a feeling of their afflictions, and shall not myself one of their kind, that relish all as sharply passion as they be kindlier moved than thou art? Though with their high wrongs I am struck to the quick, yet... With my nobler reason, against my fury do I take part. The rarer action is in virtue than in vengeance. They being penitent. The sole drift of my purpose doth extend not a frown further. Go, release them, Ariel. My charms I'll break, their senses I'll restore, and they shall be themselves. And it's at that moment he gives up his power, he gives up his magic, he becomes one of them again. Having arranged this experience for everybody, having redeemed what could be redeemed, constrained what couldn't be, finally the power of mercy has done everything it can in the world. Many thanks to Professor Robert Wiltenberg, who teaches in the English department at Washington University in St. Louis. And thanks to you, too, for tuning in to Hold That Thought, produced by Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. This is Rebecca King, signing out for now. But if you want to hear more, you can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, PRX.org, and Stitcher. Subscribe to keep up with all of our latest. <laughs>